1: So we begin April, closing out a quarter which saw a resurgent volatility index. Dominant forces began to reassert themselves, though, including a weaker dollar and a flatter yield curve. The difference between the yield on two-year Treasury notes and 10-year yields dropped below 50 basis points, a post-crisis low. So what's the economic signal if there is one at all? Let's bring in Mark Chandler, Brown Brothers Harriman, Global Head of Currency Strategist, who joins us now in New York. Mark, great to catch up with you, sir. Thanks. Happy Walk Mondays. me through it. Is it different this time? Two's ten, south of fifty.
2: Well, I think that you know we're not going to get for sure until it gets inverted. But I think you know that the yield curve, that two to ten, is still seen by many economists as one of the most accurate guides to the U.S. economy. <clears throat> so it's flashing us some warning signs. So what are the warning signs right now? Well, I think that the warning sign is that the U.S. economy has entered late stage of its economic expansion that began in 2009. So things like auto sales rolling over, non farm payrolls slowing, though we're still at elevated levels. We'll see this report on Friday, but the 12 month moving average peaked over three years ago. And we got this uh, default rate or delinquency rate, at least on credit cards, going up. All signs of late cycle. I think that's confirming what the yield curve is telling us, and that is that the economy is in late stage.
1: And seemingly the Federal Reserve is not backing away. why the two-year yield has remained so anchored. Are you surprised by how many people in this market haven't taken out Rate hikes for 2018, given the picture that you've just painted.
2: No, because I think that this. The, I think the Federal Reserve is looking past this weakness in Q1 GDP, which is sort of like a curse in the U.S. You know, since the crisis, first quarter GDPs tend to be on the soft side. But I think the reason the Fed can look past this softness in Q1 is because we've got a lot of fiscal stimulus. We've got more fiscal stimulus in the pipeline yeah. than was generated in 2009 in the midst of the crisis.
0: Do you have a number then? What that does to GDP? Does it add two tenths of a percent? Three? I mean, have you seen a good calculation? Well, i
2: go with the Federal Reserve. I don't see any reason to doubt the Federal Reserve on this. They say it's worth about 0. 0.4, maybe 0. 0.5 to GDP. That's a big number. It's a big number, but it's a short term. That is to say that uh, yeah. the effect of the fiscal stimulus wears off relatively. I mean, I look at the
0: conundrum of April, and maybe even I'll be charitable and go out eight weeks into the end of May. And I, I just to me, it's an arch debate right now what this Fed will do. The Fed's been very quiet. I, I assume they're going to be a lot louder. And communicating the message in April. Yeah,
2: what I see is uh, so so startling to me is that the market it looks like uh, I use a WIRP on Bloomberg. Can check this out. Really? That, that you have a Fed funds. Uh, calculation. And looking at the Bloomberg's calculation, the market is putting in about a one in four chance of a May rate hike. And I think that's just over the top. I think that yeah. uh, uh, Powell's first meeting is able to raise interest rates, show his hawkish credentials. But to hike in May seems to me to be over the top.
0: Where is the most exposed uh, part of the foreign exchange trade? The speculators out there, not the hedgers, but the people trying to make alpha in foreign exchange. Where's the greatest belief right now?
2: I think the greatest belief is using the f- the yen. Using the Swiss franc and the dollar as funding currencies to buy other higher returning assets like emerging markets. I tell you that the market has been squeezed out of a lot of the short yen positions at uh, the funding side. Uh, they've shifted over to dollars and the Swiss francs. And so I think the dollar's position is the most extreme as far as short dollar position by speculators. Yeah.
1: For anyone following the Fed speak, uh, a scheduled speech from Fed Chairman Jay Powell oh, came, came on the agenda just last week, late in the week. For anyone that missed it, April 6th, Tom. April 6th, the Fed Chairman will be giving a speech on the economic outlook during a visit to Chicago. So put that one in the diary if you can. Um, I I do want to get to China, Mark, as well. It's in the news again this morning. Retaliatory tit-for-tat tariffs kicking in today. Something changed last Mm -hmm. quarter where suddenly we woke up to the prospect of a move of the trade situation. Can you put it into perspective for us and how worried we should be in the coming quarter?
2: Sure I think a lot of people when they hear protections and you know we all think back about Smoot-Hawley and we read in the history books. This is nothing like that. You look at the amount of trade that's being exposed to these tariffs relatively small. Here's what I think about China and the retaliation. One it's not tit-for-tat. U.S. is saying steel and aluminum tariffs <clears throat> that's what China is retaliating for now and they're putting on tariffs on about three billion dollars <laughs> worth of U.S. goods, relatively small amount. I think China strategy is really threefold one take these retaliatory measures small symbolic measures secondly challenge the u.s to the wto and thirdly adopt some of the changes. Some of these changes are low-hanging fruit for the Chinese, like uh, better protection for intellectual property rights. As Chinese companies gain their own portfolio of patents, China's interest is much more to defend uh, the intellectual property rights. So I think China's going to make some reforms, fight the US at WTO, and do some of these symbolic measures. Do you have clarity on what America's strategy is? America's strategy, in in my mind, the best way to think about what what President Trump is doing and people he's surrounding himself by is really repeating the success the U.S. thinks it had with Japan under Ronald Reagan with voluntary export restrictions, like we did with Korea, or orderly market agreements, which involves quotas. Many people in the U.S. thought it was successful against Japan opening up the Japanese markets in the 1980s with Ronald Reagan. No one called this a trade war then. And I think that a lot of the people are surrounding himself, uh, the Trump administration, doing the same thing same products same same efforts
0: watch what they do what are flows doing right now? I mean, whether it's sterling in the flow of sterling and supporting with all the Brexit back and forth, but what are dollar flows right now?
2: Well, you know, we're gonna get some tick data again, but right now it looks like foreign appetite for U.S. securities has weakened. Partly we're in a bearish market for bonds, people think, even though the bond yeah. deal, like you mentioned, is below that 280 that had held us up. And I think they were seeing not so much demand for U.S. equities. The demand for equities seems to be going much more towards Europe and emerging markets. So right now I'd say the U.S. current economy deficit, which is sizable, is being funded by hot flows rather than these long-term are we, flows.
0: John, are, are we, we're range-bound, right, John? Oh, I mean, it, I, I'm it, sorry, it, after five days. In
2: today's
1: session, very much so in the FX yeah, market. Really, really bound. muted price action. We can have this sort of overly sophisticated conversation about international trade, what is good, what is right, what we should, what we shouldn't do. I just want to understand how markets, how you think markets should adjust to the reality of this relationship between China and the United States. <clears throat> how should markets adjust, and, and how are you adjusting? Yes, I
2: i look past these. I expect there's a, a, sort of a high level of chronic trade tension between the US <clears throat> and yeah. China, now, just like there was a chronic tension between the US and Japan for many years, but I don't think it really affects the right. market on a day-to-day basis.
0: I don't know if China even thinks about northern border, southern border. The president does. He tweeteth. We go to Mark Chandler for immediate tweet perspective. And this is your area, uh, Mr. Chandler. Mexico has the absolute power not to let these large, quote, caravans, unquote, of people enter their country. They must stop them at their northern border, which they can do because their border laws work, not allow them to pass through into our country, which has no effective border laws. And I wonder there if the president's conflating the northern border with Chiapas, And the hugely fractious Mexican southern border, which, you know, I'm not informed on, Mark, but borders on um, civil war or, you know, some real violence there. But this is the flow of Central America North. I mean, that politics is still there still there,
2: but I think that you find that, uh, one, I'd say that Trump's uh, tweets seem to be confusing north-south borders, just like he he confused whether he puts a billion dollars, whether he wants to have the Chinese trade improved by a billion or a hundred billion. I think it's an awkward way to have diplomacy. But I do think that these issues are real. That is to say, there's problems in South America. Mexico is the gateway into the U.S. But I think that some of this anti-immigration, some of this comes from sort of the far-right shock media that Trump just picks up and then retweets
0: Well, we see it seven minutes ago on Twitter. We'll have much more on that. Somehow, I think there'll be John Farrell. A few more tweets, a few more tweets uh, this morning as well. Mark Chandler, as always, thank you with Brown Brothers Harriman. Let's get a, a viewpoint now on where we are for April and into the second quarter on international relations and how they fold into the markets. Kim Wallace is with Ian Bremers, Eurasia Group. He has a terrific perspective on Washington and how policy folds into Our economics. Uh, Kim, is there a Trump policy in foreign affairs?
3: Good question, Tom. Not yet. Uh, you know, most presidents develop a doctrine, or you can detect a doctrine two or three years into it. I don't think it's going to be much different here, but we do have a sense of how the president regards international relations, and that is like any other negotiation. Everything to him seems to be transactional. The trouble here with trade is that uh, over the 40 years, Ricardo has been proven right. When you build a global trading system, it's really difficult for one actor to break it apart without there being severe damage on all sides, and we're Running into those risks now.
0: One of the hallmark things. This came up a couple times this weekend in conversation with folks. Is Kim Wallace the president really hasn't been tested yet with an international crisis?
3: Is that right? It's right. You could stretch it out, Tom, and say he hasn't been tested by a crisis at all, except those of his uh, of his own making. So we're headed into waters that are very different and unknown for this president and how he reacts. I think that owes a lot to the uh, softness in the dollar and other uh, assets that the uh, markets are just a little bit uh, nervous right now.
1: Uh, Kim, for a while, the, the market had ignored a lot of this. And then we woke up in 2018, and all of a sudden, the reaction function of some investors has changed drastically, more specifically to the issues around trade. Why do you think that is, Kim?
3: The first piece, I think, is because tax cuts were passed in December. Uh, Whatever work they have to do to clean that up in this year or next year is beyond the point. But from an agenda standpoint, tax cuts were passed last year. Now we move into a midterm election year. People have been focused on politics. Now they have to focus on policy and economic realities of protectionist trade policies from the U.S. It's well, different than what they expected.
1: Well, Kim, let me try and get my hands around the policy. Um, this administration, rightly or wrongly, has blurred some of the lines between foreign policy and economic policy, and and we're doing it again with Mexico this morning as we look at immigration policy, but fold that into a debate on NAFTA as well. How difficult is it to get any clarity on the direction of travel for economic policy when the line? are blurred into the immigration debate, into foreign policy. For foreign policy, say China and North Korea. For the immigration debate, it's Mexico. But both of those issues fold into broader economic trade stories as well. How difficult is it to understand where this is going?
3: It's incredibly difficult, and that's why I think you have uh, politicians on Capitol Hill, both parties, but especially Republicans going into the midterms, and trading partners around the world. Very confused right now. The president talks about uh, good trade policy. And when he sticks to issues like national security, when he looks at intellectual property protections, tech transfer, things that clearly over the last two decades China has taken advantage of the U.S. through the WTO, he's on the Southampton. When he veers into other things, unrelated really to trade, when you start attacking our number one and our number two trading partners, Canada and Mexico, uh, that's what makes uh, Union Pacific, for example, nervous. That's what makes uh, ADM, for example, nervous, is that uh, there's a chance here that you're going to have real damage done to trade flows that show up on their bottom line.
0: Kim Wallace, let's be clear that the president has a huge part of America that's with him in different shades on immigration and on any kind of border issues, particularly, let's be blunt, with our southern border. The imagery that I've seen of this quote-unquote caravan, which I'm going to editorialize is a thousand kind of people coming out of Central America. It's a tradition. They walk across Mexico as one part PR stunt and one part reality. How will that play in Washington if the caravan gets bigger or as the caravan moves towards america's southern border
3: it's part of the problem in knowing where this is going to head in the near term tom obviously the key is we don't know we don't know and we and it's unknowable frankly the caravans have been going on for decades now and how much that adds to overall migration no one has real figures but as you said there's a reality and there's the pr part of this the pr part of this is again national security protect your borders sound footing, good, easily understood policy, but when it veers into other aspects of our relationships with Mexico. That's when trouble comes up. That's when the Mexicans push back against us. That's when U.S. suppliers of goods and services to Mexico don't have a sense of where this is headed. There's There's a path here for the president to speak both to his base and to achieve trade policy that arguably hasn't yeah. been updated in two decades. The question is whether or not he can stay on uh, the script of uh, the reality and stay away from the PR.
0: And, and, and John Farrow, this speaks to the caravans of Europe with people, whether on rafts or boats or whatever, coming across the Mediterranean. Yeah, and,
1: and it's been a big issue in Europe as well, and you've <clears throat> seen it come up in various elections too, and that drives us towards the midterms, Kim, later on this year. If this is campaign politics... I imagine it plays well with the base, and therefore I guess we can conclude we're going to hear more of it, Kim?
3: I think we'll hear more of it, and it plays very well with the base. It doesn't, but those uh, those thoughts and, and that uh, scare tactic doesn't really do much on the economic side, and that's the conundrum here, is how do you figure out... What do you do to promote uh, your base showing up to the polls yeah. in midterm elections? And this is a good issue. And then what do you do to avoid hurting your party by hurting its supporters economically? So the, Republicans, they figured that piece out the
4: Republicans
1: have got a pretty strong message at the moment, Kim. They've passed a tax bill. They can look to the U.S. economy and be hopeful about a decent year of growth. Um, the president can get on the campaign trail and talk about tightening up the border with Mexico. What is the message, the campaign trail message from the Democrat Party right now?
3: Uh, Yet to be developed, I think it is that uh, a lot of the policies that the president is pursuing are not in the long-term interest of the country. For example, his uh, flavor of immigration policy doesn't take into account many of the nuances, be they uh, national security, economic, uh, criminal justice. There's a list of issues inside of immigration Democrats don't believe that the president's policies are comprehensive enough and that he's taking an easy approach to a really complicated policy. Your question is good, because I don't think that's a message that they're going to take to the polls. I think the message Democrats want to take to the polls, basically, is that we can do better.
0: Kim Moss, thank you so much. Really smart. Thank you so much for the Eurasia Group uh, this morning.
1: Neil Dada joining us now in New York, of course, joining us from Renmac. Economics, Renmax, head of U.S. economics. Neil to get us set up for the U.S. data softer relative to expectations through Q1. Q2, any different?
4: I think you'll probably see a bounce in Q1. I mean, um, I mean Q2, rather. Uh, you know, we've, we've seen this scenario before. I mean, <laughs> you've had uh, very robust jobs growth in the first quarter, but uh, if you look at the expenditure side, tracking estimates of GDP, they've come in a little bit weaker. Um Payrolls tend to be a much more stable measure of activity, uh, along with survey measures like the ISM, which is released later today. Um, I think you go with those numbers. And, uh, you know, that tells me that uh, the second quarter should, should be substantially better uh, than what we've seen in the first. Um, you know, and, and a lot of the weakness in Q1 is, is just a function, I think, of weaker consumer spending. Uh, we've seen a bit of an uptick in the in the saving rate, um you know, some weakness in uh, in consumer spending. Um, but with confidence high and the employment situation remaining fairly uh, fairly solid, it's unlikely that these weak uh, readings on consumer spending are going to last.
1: Neil, how do you get a read on the, the labor market in the United States? Because we've had two jobs reports for the year so far, the January jobs report and the, and the February payrolls reports, and they couldn't have been more different. The January jobs report got everyone scared about inflation, wage growth being the standout there. Then the February jobs report was just this monster payrolls growth to 313k and the idea that maybe we can carry on generating these kind of numbers without the wage growth so where does the truth lie for ren mac what are you looking at january or february and extrapolate it forward for me
4: well you shouldn't take any <laughs> everyone knows that you shouldn't take i mean it's it's interesting to see these sort of you know significant narratives develop in the in, in the capital markets based off uh, off the off the u.s uh, jobs data uh, yeah. be that as it may um you know i uh, you know, I think the general story is one um, to your latter point, which is basically this is a labor market that is not yet at full employment. I mean, you have – to me, the big story is the turn in prime age labor force participation that started sometime early in 2015 and yeah. continues to this day. Um, that's – you know, we are not – people talk about late cycle. I hear that all the time in our client meetings. If you look at the labor market, it doesn't look late cycle to me. I mean, does temporary help employment accelerate late cycle? Do we generate this sort of robust jobs growth late cycle? Um, well. With wage growth, less than 3% late cycle. So to me, this whole story that we're you know using the labor market data and low unemployment as a sign that the economy is late cycle, I think is uh, – Right you know, real data, but, you know, fake news. Neil, uh, be careful now. Uh, (laughs) uh, Give us the
0: vector, fake news guy. Give us the vector on the unemployment rate, and is it a constructive vector to drive under 4%?
4: You know, I think it probably will go below 4% at some point over the next year, but Tom, I think the big story that no one's talked about is that it's been stuck at 4.1 for the last five or six months. Yeah, exactly. That's the main story. So if the uh, and, and, of course, I mean, if you look at things like the U6 rate, for example, uh, it's not so much that the U6 rate is down, but the question is, mm-hmm. why isn't it lower, given how much okay. gone, the U3 rate has gone down? So I think that there's still some residual yeah. slack in the labor market.
0: Neil Dutta, thank you so much for greatly appreciate it, particularly your wisdom in the 5 o'clock hour this morning, as we got this second quarter going.
5: We're talking about Walmart. They're all going to become one. One big company, perhaps, uh, maybe even offering healthcare. Uh, Humana stock up about 7%. Walmart now down about 2.5%. Here to tell us all about the possible combination of uh, Humana and Walmart is Jonathan Palmer, Bloomberg intelligence expert when it comes to all things healthcare related. Always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in, Jonathan. So, what do you make
6: of this uh, possibility of a deal? Why would Walmart want to buy Humana? Thanks for having me on, Pim. You know, the story came out last week on Friday. Interesting timing. The Wall Street Journal came out that they were in talks, early talks, Humana and Walmart. And they've been pretty good on the healthcare front of kind of scoping out or smoking out potential deals. But my view is that I don't see Humana being bought by Walmart. It just doesn't make sense for Walmart to own and insurer. These guys have a partnership that goes back about seven years to 2010, where they offer a Medicare Part D plan that's co-branded together. It's been very, very successful in the market. I think we see something along the lines of a, a, a more in-depth partnership that maybe brings more people, more of Humana's customers into the stores. What would that, how would that take shape? What would that look like? So there's a a trend in the marketplace to consumerization of healthcare and moving healthcare out of what we think of traditional sites of care. So hospitals, doctors, offices, one of the big promises of the CVS-Aetna deal is that CVS will begin to start offering healthcare in their, their pharmacies for Aetna members and thereby lowering costs and maybe getting ahead of some of the things that might be causing problems for their patients. The same thing might be ha- uh, said for this deal. Maybe we get more people into Walmart to get healthcare checkups or, or wellness checkups, that sort of so thing. So maybe expanding the pharmacy that exists inside of a Walmart to include a clinic. That's right. So Walmart does have some clinics in some of its stores, and and Humana has been pushing down that that route as well. They have about 200 owned clinics in the country. It's it's a far cry from the minute clinics that you see at CVS, which are well over a thousand. But you know we well, might see something along those lines.
0: At CVS, are there MDs or fancy nurses in those clinics or not?
6: It's a mix, depending on where you go. It's a mix.
0: You don't know. And at Walmart Humana, would they have MDs or fancy nurses in those clinics?
6: That's a great question. Does anybody
0: (laughs) want to go to these things? Come on. Well, you know, for some run-of-the-mill things, I I think
6: you could go to a a local clinic instead of going to your doctor or maybe waiting a couple of days. The middle
0: son takes a curveball off his left elbow in a Little League game, and I'm going to go someplace... Without a doctor or a fancy nurse?
6: I agree with you there. You break something, you <laughs> want to go to a hospital. But you. if you have a sniffle and your your uh, GP says, I can't see you for another three days, you might say, okay, I'll go wait for half an hour at the local CVS or Walmart. No, what
0: we do here but, at Surveillance is we go see Dr. Al and he says, get to work. I mean, that's how it works, <laughs> right? But let me let me
5: just push back on this. Okay. So uh, you have some an, an accident. What is typically going to happen? You're going to end up in a hospital, they're going to, well, but I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to take an x-ray or they're going to end up having an MRI or a CAT scan, depending Mm -hmm. upon the severity of the situation. If you can get those kinds of things into a non-hospital setting, why do they need to be in a hospital?
6: Great point. I I don't think we'll see that level of acuity or or complications, you know, move out of the traditional hospital setting. I think these are more the -the run-of-the-mill preventative types of, of visits. But why though? Is it because of cost? Is it because well, that, cost the x-ray th- machine and that MRI machine just costs so much money that you, know, you got to keep it in the hospital? Well, when it comes to insurance companies and healthcare companies in general, it's always about cost and how can you lower costs?
0: Is there proof that they can make money on the revenue down the income statement by clinic, clinicizing, I'm inventing a new word, <laughs> by cliniquing or whatever, Walmart's? I just don't. This reminds me of you know banks at, at grocery stores. That's been the rage like three times, Pim. Is, well, like, say, you it, need,
6: it's it's definitely uh, an unproven model. Nobody's proven this out.
0: Nobody's pr- even CVS with their clinics. CVS, really it's a it's it. a
6: hope and a dream that that happens Thank over you. the next five or six okay. years. So, if this combination
5: is about expanded use of the Walmart real estate to offer healthcare services. Uh Humana will be looking, what, at the cost benefit analysis to determine whether that is a less
6: expensive delivery system than what they currently offer in hospitals? Absolutely. They're, are they're focused on the cost. And traditionally, if you can manage people earlier in the process, so getting them to see doctors earlier, making sure that they follow through on, on checkups or that their blood pressure medications working, those sorts of things, that saves you money down the line from Something that's maybe far worse that requires a long hospital. Okay, stay. Then,
5: l- then let me just push back to what you originally said, which is the perhaps no deal because it didn't make sense. So why not have Walmart just buy an insurance company and self insure? But what's the ins- difference? I mean, if you're going to pay the premium to someone, why pay it to a third party that ostensibly uh, is a bean counter but doesn't necessarily add value to the service that is ultimately being delivered? It's not like
6: Humana has its own doctors, its own nurse practitioners, and so on. Well. You know, the, the healthcare market's its own animal. And I, I think, you know, Walmart is really good at retail. <laughs> and, and Humana's pretty good on the insurance side. And they're already running clinics and doing this themselves. So they probably have more expertise in that area than, than Walmart. So it makes sense for them yeah. to partner as opposed to do an outright purchase.
0: How will the hospitals and the doctors respond to the hopes and dreams of these providers and their merging in into a medical oligopoly?
6: Well, <clears throat> hospital administrators and doctors are, are not big fans of systems in general. They, they they don't like hospital systems. They don't like insurers. They don't like P- PBMs. So I think you'll see a, a certain amount of skepticism from those groups on on this promise. The reality, though, is I think if you told a doctor that said, oh, uh, you know, uh, Miss Smith comes in and wastes my time over every little sniffle, she can go to her local CVS or, or Walmart and get that taken care of. And I can focus my time on patients who who have bigger problems, they would probably agree with that notion that that yeah, but, might work. But
0: stop. I'm going to give away my microbiology background. On one in 842 of those patients that wander into a Walmart and somewhere between aisle 6 and aisle 10 go in because they have a stifle is going to be some form of Staphylococcus advanced infection that that guy or that advanced nurse is getting paid a lot of money to figure out. Right. I mean, I, I just... I don't understand how the quality is maintained given emergent rare conditions.
6: It's a very good point. And I, I think you have to really think, of, take a step back and say, we're really not going to be focusing on, on these sorts of things. It's the run of the mill uh, healthcare delivery that's going to happen there. And it's not something yeah. <laughs> you want to go if you have some rare disease or some rare condition.
5: Is is this also a situation in which we're focused on on what is a de minimis cost in the system, which is that most of the cost in the healthcare system occurs at late stages of life and has to do with either catastrophic or uh, illnesses related to terminal care?
6: That's right. If you're you know the majority of healthcare dollars are spent by people over sixty five on on a lot of the end of life. Sort of treatments if you have cancer, if you have debilitating heart disease, (laughs) you know, if you have diabetes, these are all you know really high costs to the healthcare system. So, if you can do some stuff to prevent some of these from happening Mm. earlier, that's the problem. Would it
5: make more sense for let's say uh, Walmart to buy uh, or uh, expand uh, diabetes uh, renal
6: care centers? That's an interesting concept.
0: Listen to you. You know, the terminology over there. See? Should Walmart buy New York Presbyterian? Oh, I don't... think MGH in Boston? No, but I
6: mean, if they got the, they got the real yeah. estate, why not go there for your dialysis? Well, dialysis is extremely complicated, and those patients are, are very sick. I don't think anybody wants to go get dialysis right. uh, who's yeah. getting it at, at their local Walmart. Yeah.
0: Jonathan Palmer, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast.